we had put this facility out to bid for complete replacement 10 days before it collapsed. We thought we had made it. By glory, we had made it and we're gonna get this done and we're not gonna have a problem. And it had been out on the street in the bidder's hands for 10 days. And then I got the phone call at 2.17 on the morning. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a business leader whose life was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities, and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. Welcome to a new podcast of The Day That Changed Everything. I'm Donna Broussard with Maine Biz, and today we're talking with Chris Gardner, the Executive Director of the Eastport Port Authority, about the day that changed everything when the breakwater in Eastport collapsed in 2014. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me on, Donna. Appreciate sure. it. So let's tell people, first of all, where is Eastport? Because maybe some of our listeners are not familiar. So Eastport is a town in Maine on the coast of Maine, and it is the easternmost point of the United States? Close. Uh, we're actually a city. We're Maine's smallest city. We're located at the easternmost city in the United States, the eastern tip of Maine. But our good neighbors uh, just to the east of us in the town of Lubeck are, are quick to remind us that they are the easternmost point, but we do hold the moniker as the eastern. Okay. City. Noted, duly noted, duly noted, duly noted. And being on the coast, there's a working harbor in Eastport. And as the executive director of the Eastport Port Authority, you are managing the harbor operations there uh, with the two, two terminals, two facilities. Is that correct? Correct. The Eastport Port Authority was created in 1977 by a special law of the legislature. And our primary focus is we oversee the deepest natural cargo port in the United States. And that is our primary function. But a secondary function of that is we also oversee all the harbor infrastructure that the city is blessed with, and that includes our working waterfront. Right. And so part of the two facilities, you've got the Estes Head Terminal, and then you've got the Breakwater Terminal. And what we're going to talk about today is the Breakwater Terminal. Now, it's it's kind of a dual purpose because a breakwater, from my understanding, limited as it is of nautical terms, a breakwater is a structure that protects the harbor, Correct normally. That's correct. But in Eastport, the breakwater is also used as a terminal that boats can tie up to and and, and people can use it for that kind of access. Is that correct? Correct. It was built in uh, the 60s by the Seabees at the time, and it was built uh, for that dual function. It not only protected the harbor, but it was also a working pier that could be utilized for their purposes. And what kind of purposes was the pier used for, the breakwater pier? Well, when the the CBs built it, it was you know predominantly a, a commercial pier for uh, the their operations that they were here in Eastport. But also, it's from its very beginning, it's had a 
a connection to the commercial fishing operations here. In so let's talk a little bit about you, Chris. You're a, a Maine native. Yes, that's correct. Educated in Maine. And uh, you came to the port in uh, 2007, correct? That's correct. I've been here at the Port Authority since, uh, I think, April of 2007. Prior to that, I was a uh, police officer. That was my, my other vocation, if you will. Uh, even though I'm formally educated, I have a bachelor's degree in business administration. As I was finishing up my college years, I decided I would look around for a job because that's also very important. And I had a lot of family that were in the law enforcement career. And I said, well, I'll do that for a few minutes till I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And 10 years later, I was still doing it. But in 2007, I transitioned uh, over to the Port Authority. And when you came on, on board, no pun intended, but when you came on board to the Port Authority, one of the things you did notice was that the breakwater was a little worse for wear, right? Absolutely. That breakwater was created, or excuse me, built in the 60s. And it was only built to have a 20-year lifespan. That's all it was designed to hold. But in the 80s, well, when the, the Army Corps of Engineers was in the process of wanting to tear it down because it had outlived its usefulness, the local community, along with the state of Maine, looked at it and said, look, we still think this pier has a lot of life. And as a result, in the 80s, when it was actually uh, scheduled to be tore down, they expanded upon it. And you know, that's what really started the, the cargo operations here in the port of uh, Eastport was at that, that pier. But quite honestly, it was showing its wear really back then. They made some repairs to it. But you know, for a pier that was built in the 60s that had a 20-year lifespan, by the time 2007 rolled around, you can imagine that it was, you know, it had well outproduced or outlived, I should say, uh, what it had intended to do. So you recognized that there was a problem. And what steps did you take to, to address it? Well, in 2007, when we first got here, when I first got here, you know, we had to do a complete uh, inventory of all of our structures. And, and in 2007, we knew that that facility was effectively on what we'd like to call borrowed time. And we knew that we had to take a you know, comprehensive approach to try to fix it. But as you can imagine, in, in these times and those times as well, you know, it, that was a pretty big undertaking for a small community. The Port Authority, even though we are publicly owned, we're revenue funded. We're effectively a public business. And you know, we try to take our winnings, if you will, and, and reinvest them back in the community. But even for an organization of our size, in 2007, we knew that was gonna be a big bite to take. So we started to put some planning together and, and knew that we had to come up with a comprehensive long-term plan to replace it. And you know, that process started back in 2007, but it really didn't get accelerated until about 2013. And how much money did you need to raise to fix it? Well, that was really kind of a big unknown because, you know, the old adage, how much does it cost to build a house? Well, that depends, right? What kind of house? So what's it cost to rebuild that pier? Well, that depended exactly on, you know, how we would go about that. And that was part of the process was trying to figure out, you know, not only the fact that we needed to, but what in fact did we need to do? So at the time in 2007, we just knew that it was going to be obviously in the millions but we had no real idea exactly how much. And I'll admit in 2007, the facility was still performing. So everybody that gets a chance to put off until tomorrow, procrastination is an art, especially in the down east, in the down east <laughs> way, if you will. So we didn't really move on it until we had a, a small structural problem that occurred in 2013. So the small structural problem that occurred in 2013 was a little bit of a harbinger of what was to come, do you think? Absolutely. 
In 2013, on what's what we'll call the north side, for those who you know can find it on a map, they can orient it. But on the north side of the breakwater, it had a structural failure, if you will, minor by by comparison, especially what we saw the following year. But it had a structural failure that we decided that we needed to really dig into. We got in touch with the Department of Transportation, you know, the main main DOT. They come down, send engineers, and we come up with a plan and said, okay, we can fix this one more problem. But it was at that time we realized that, you know, forgive the adage, but we were really putting lipstick on a pig, so to speak, and that, or, or one of my favorites, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So we knew at that point in time in 2013. If we weren't serious about fixing it, we were going to have a very serious right. problem. So you continued to try to raise money for that. And then the day that changed everything was on December 4th at two o'clock right. in the morning. That's it right. collapsed, or at least a portion of it, the outer part, it sort of collapsed in towards the coast, the, the shoreline. That's correct. I will tell you um, to kind of preface that a little bit. In 2013, when we knew that we had a problem, you know, we went to our federal delegation and our state, you know, our state people, and everybody stepped up uh, from the community side, local, port authority, state, federal, and we actually moved mountains. And we had the facility funded for a complete repair uh, in under a year. And to take, you know, problem to solution and out to bid in, in, in about a year's time was, was amazing. And the irony of it all was that we had put this facility out to bid for complete replacement 10 days before it collapsed. Wow. We thought we thought we had made it. By gory, we had made it, and we're going to get this done, and we're not going to have a problem. And it had been out on the street in the bidder's hands for 10 days. And then I got the phone call at 2.17 on the morning on December 4th. So how lo- how big was the breakwater originally? Breakwater is about a 400-foot long by 100-foot wide pier, and it's L-shaped. And what leads out to that pier is about another 200 feet. So imagine 200 feet out and then 400 feet running parallel to the shore. How much of it collapsed? When, when I first got the phone call, um, I was told that at least, you know, 100 feet of it or better had fallen into the ocean and ultimately by the time daybreak came and she had you know continued to collapse over time and what happened initially was catastrophic and then after that it just continued to kind of just give way give way give way but ultimately we lost about a 200 foot section of the 400 foot pier so uh, effectively half and then the remaining part wasn't safe probably either, right? No, no, obviously at that point in time. I, I'll never forget the morning uh, of that call at 217, when you look over and see your cell phone and your operations manager calling, you know that's not just to check in and see how things are going. There is no good phone call that comes at 217 in the morning. And when I picked up the phone, he said, uh, the pier just fell into the ocean, boss. And I said, What? <laughs> He said the pier just fell into the ocean. My operations manager also happens to be the fire chief here in town. It's, you know, the down east way. We all have many hats. And he said it just fell into the ocean. They're toning the fire department out. We don't know what we have. And I said, what? And he said, will you please stop saying what? Well, it's hard to believe. Yeah, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I said, I told him Richard Clark was a fire chief, long fire, long-term fire chief here in Eastport. I said, Richard, I'm on my way. But I almost didn't even believe him. I'm like, okay, what you said is not really what happened. I'll be there in a few minutes. I'll tell you how fast I got there, except for the fact that I don't want those at home to do the math. 
and say that I may have, you know, skirted a few speeding, uh, speeding tickets on the way. But when I got there, I, about five minutes out, I called him. I said, okay, Richard, you're there now. Tell me what you really have. Okay, I'm sure it was overblown. He said, it's gone, boss. Half of the pier is in the ocean. And I still didn't believe him, but I was with an eyesight. I said, Richard, I'll be there in just a, and then I went pause because then my eyes said it, you know, I got a chance to look at it as I was cresting the hill. And I realized my word, half of the pier was gone. I saw the video. It's a scary video because it reminded me of some, you know, big creature of the deep coming up and just sucking it piece by piece down into the ocean because it kind of fell in line. And there was one angle that the Coast Guard camera caught where you see the, the street light lamps going one after the other, after the other, after the other. It was really creepy. I wonder what the sound of it was like. Did people describe what that sounded like? Well, it's funny you say that. The one person, and, and thank the good Lord that nobody was seriously injured when this took place. I mean, this took place at 2.17 or 2 o'clock in the morning, I should say. And literally 12 hours beforehand was the opening day of scallop season here. And uh -huh. we have a local photographer that used to fly and take pictures. And he took pictures of opening day. And literally in the spot that the uh, collapse took place, 12 hours prior, there was probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 vehicles parked. And so if this had been 12 hours beforehand, it could have been much, much worse. But as it was, to get back to the sound, there was just there was one young man who was uh, staying aboard one of the schooners. And that's what actually saved him. He heard the pier kind of groaning, if you will, and it woke him up. And he called the, the schooner owner and said, look, this pier is making some very funny noises. I think I'm going to get off the boat. And as he was going to get off the boat to reach for the ladder, he realized that the ladder was reaching for him. Ah. And it was actually coming towards him. And he had to jump from boat to boat to kind of escape the collapse that was all around him. Him and his little beagle dog. He's, he's kind of famous here in town. And again, uh, praise be, uh, he escaped serious injury. He just twisted his ankle and we got him checked out and he was okay. That was the extent of quote unquote physical injury. And we only lost one boat officially. I mean, some boats got seriously, seriously damaged, but we only sunk one. So yeah, it was, it was quite a morning. Quite a morning. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happened after the day that changed everything. This is not business as usual. Now more than ever, the Norway Savings Business Lending Team is here to help make sure you're still able to do what you do. But let's face it, this is not an easy time. We will get through it together. It's a great comfort seeing the business community in Maine rallying around one another. It's our job to rally around you. Norway Savings. Live your life in color. By the time daylight came, we had the whole thing effectively cleaned up, except for obviously what had fallen into the ocean. But boats had been recovered, damaged boats had been secured. It was absolutely amazing what I saw that morning from this community, amazing. Welcome back. It's Donna Versard, and I'm here with Chris Gardner, Executive Director of the Eastport Port Authority, talking about the day that changed everything in 2014 when the breakwater pier collapsed in Eastport. As you said, only one person was injured, not not badly, but one person injured. One boat sunk, but lots of damage, obviously. But the, what it meant to the 
court and what it meant to um, the ability to have that be a working peer obviously was over at that point. Yeah, it was it was quite a quite a blow, as you can imagine. It was just an absolute shock because uh, two things. I mean, number one, for what it just meant to the community. I mean, it was a it's it's one of those iconic structures, if you will, within our community. And it's like losing a you know part of the family, so to speak, when you see the peer collapse. But beyond that, it was the shock that we thought we had figured it out. I mean, literally, we had put this to bid 10 days and to think that all of that work that we had put in and, and the rapid fire and the help from our, you know, our senators and, our, and the governor's office and all this stuff, we were, we had made the mark by gory. We had, we were not going to lose this peer. And then the, just the gut shot of two o'clock in the morning, 10 days after you put it out to bid, all those plans that you had, yes, throw them in the trash because now we got to come up with something different. And did, did anybody find out specifically what caused it to collapse on that day at that moment in time? You no, know, there's a lot of theories in that regard. We had received a ton of rain, a ton of rain in the previous days prior to. And in the area that collapsed, this facility had gone on over the years because of its age, had gone over a series of kind of facelifts or, or repairs. And this area that let go in 1994, it was repaired. It, it actually had you know, suffered some sort of a structural problem. And I wasn't here at the time, but the engineering reports, and they did a tremendous amount of work. That was actually considered and thought to be one of the strongest parts of the pier because it had such a comprehensive redo. But what we, again, it's, it's, all, it's all theory and supposition at this point in time. But we think that the ground was so saturated with water and that that area just started to let go and you mentioned the light poles, and that was a very good pickup on your behalf because those light poles were mounted kind of cantilevered down to the sides of the pier, and there was a big 480-volt line that connected all those. And when one of those poles let go, the question was, what was stronger, the 480 line or the pier? So as one pole fell, it tried to pull the next pole, and if the line didn't break, it pulled the pole. And when it did, it pulled the side of the pier open. So it opened like a zipper. It only wasn't until it got back to a point that the pier was stronger than the, the tension on the 480 line that it stopped. So it was probably more of a, of a singular failure and it just opened up like a zipper because of the connection of those light poles. I mean, who would have thought it? It just is one of those things. So what was the first step that you guys had to take once all the dust literally had settled that you had, and now that you know you had the money and it was out to bid, what happened next? Well, you know, when I got there that morning, it was ironic. It's one of those great mornings to be in charge. <laughs> it really was. I got there and people were like, so what do you want us to do? I said, well, I don't know. Let me get out the breakwater. Just fell into the ocean manual, page one. <laughs> so <laughs> what we had to do is we had to kind of relearn, rethink, and put some down east ingenuity to work uh, real fast. Before we kind of get to, you know, the dust settling, I think the dust itself is a very important important story because it really that morning showed some of the ingenuity resiliency cooperation the eastport coast guard station is located at that facility the men and women there were in the water immediately they helped you know the individual that was injured they helped ensure that there weren't any pollution issues that's a very big thing to bring up here we had no pollution major pollution incident out of this and it was because people sprung to action immediately 
the fishermen that were in that harbor, they were upset that they lost their pier, but so many of them were on scene almost instantly. And there was no, you know, jaw hitting the floor moment. Those men and women went to work immediately. I mean, we were immediate in trying to figure out what do we do next? And they were, they were Johnny on the spots, every single one of them. And there was a tremendous amount of work done that morning. And by the time daylight came, we had the whole thing effectively cleaned up, except for obviously what had fallen into the ocean. But boats had been recovered. Damaged boats had been secured. It was absolutely amazing what I saw that morning from this community. Amazing. Congratulations. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's a great testament. I, you know, it's sad. I, I remember having an ice cream cone on that pier on that breakwater, you know, taking a walk out there and sitting out there and having an ice cream cone. It's so sad that that happened. So the day after the day after was a good day. You, everybody pulled together and you were able to make everything work again. So then what happened? Well, at that point in time, we had to realize, you know, exactly as you said, this was the day that changed everything because all the plans that we had, we had to throw away because now we had to do a couple of different things. One, the bid process had to be drawn back. Why? Because they were bidding on a pier that existed. Now they have to bid on a pier that doesn't exist and it's going to have to be cleaned up and, and you know, right. dug out of the bottom of the ocean. We had planned on having, you know, a slow in and out of uh, the fishing fleet to be able to, you know, have them repositioned so they can still use some of the space, but they weren't expected to have to be relocated immediately overnight. The Coast Guard was, that was their base of operations. You know, that was going to be a slow process to make sure we could move them around as construction went on. All of that went out the window. We had to completely rethink how we were going to tend to the Coast Guard. So at that that first few days, there was a lot of fog as far as, okay, what do we do next? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we the first thing was, again, to pull the bid back and do an assessment of what do we have now? Because we were thinking what we had before could be rebuilt. We weren't even sure what we had was going to be able to be rebuilt. So there was a lot of work that went into that over the coming days. So what ended up happening finally at the final straw? You removed all the stuff and rebuilt a pier, right? Pier was actually had two sections. Was the original 1960s piece was what collapsed. And then I spoke earlier of in 1985, when the state and the uh, local decided they wanted to keep the pier, they actually built a new addition onto it. The new addition we found was still stable. We could rebuild off of that. And, but the 60s piece was, of course, you know, it was scheduled to be removed anyways, but we were going to remove it a little more gently than what, uh, you know, the good Lord decided to do for us <laughs> that morning. So what we, what we did from going forward is, first off, is we had a complete redesign of how we were going to go about the process. The bill, if you will, the cost uh, went up about $4 million. It was about an $11 million bill, bill is what we figured. It ended up being a $15 million bill. So, you know, we worked with the state and the feds and our local partners, our bank, the First National Bank was, was amazing. I mean, they just said, whatever you guys need, you're going to have. And we said, okay, we can fund it. Now we got to put it back together. But that's all stuff that is down the road. The immediate thing for us also was how do we re rehome the fishing fleet? There is a lot of commercial fishing boats down there that are the livelihoods for a lot of men and women in this region. And we needed to find them a home. And I will say again, as a testament to where we live and, and to the people that we work with, those fishermen themselves, you know, you give them, you give them some resources and the ability, they're the best at finding their own solution. 
And within a matter of days, we had set up a new makeshift marina on the backside of the island on a little piece of property that we had. Something that I couldn't even envision in my own mind, these fishermen had sketched out on a piece of paper in 20 minutes. And then within three days, they had it set up. They said, if we can have some resources, boss, we'll make it work. And I just gave them what they needed and got out of the way. And it really shows you that uh, most of the time, the people are the experts, especially those that are on the water. That sounds awesome. How many years did it take to get the pier back up and running? Well, the collapse occurred in 2014. Now, a good again, the good thing was it was so lucky that we had done the work that we had done. Because if we had, were starting at ground zero, if right. we hadn't put any thought towards it, and then things that fell into the ocean, we would have been years coming up with a, with a funding solution, let alone the construction. So the good news was construction and the bid process was only delayed a matter of months. But by the first or second quarter of uh, 2015, so the following year, we had uh, CPM constructors uh, had been awarded the bid. They were on site and the process took until 2017 to rebuild. And I will, so about two years. And I will tell you that a testament to everybody who worked on that, we put ourselves a real hard and firm deadline because we all need those in life. We told ourselves that by 2017, 4th of July, a United States Navy ship was going to return to that pier. And there's nothing like having the United States Naval Destroyer on its way in to hold you to a deadline. There you go. Yep. That pier is famous for ho- for hosting you know, Navy ships over the years. And we had to go a couple of years without one. But we said to ourselves then, 2017, 4th of July, there will be a Navy ship at that pier. And hats off to everybody who worked on that because they made it happen. And sure enough, by 2017... Fourth of July, we had a Navy ship back at that period. Congratulations. That must have been a, an amazing day. It really was. I mean, to, to see, to see what, what we were able to accomplish was, was quite amazing. And I will say, during the time that the construction was going on, it seemed like it took forever. But when it was all done, it seemed like it only took moments. And I think that is, again, it, it speaks volumes to how well everybody made it work. You know, to lose that type of facility in a town like this uh, is no small thing. You know, we talk about the fishermen being, dislo- you know, relocated and, and displaced and how it affected them. But make no mistake, there was so many other people, so many other businesses that I could, that could rattle off. This affected an entire town. This entire town had to rethink how it did it, how it did its business and lived its life for a few years. Jokingly, you know, it's one of those rites of passage for high school kids in Eastport, Maine, at Shedd High School to drive what's called the Miracle Mile. And that is you drive downtown around the old bank and you drive out onto the breakwater and, you know, it's that Saturday night cruising. If you think about it, there was a, there's one generation of, of high school kids that went to Shedd High School that never got to drive the Miracle Mile. Aww. Because for their two years, you know, their junior, yep. senior year, sophomore year, that facility was shut down. So, I mean, it's little things like that that show you, you know, how much things like this can affect uh, right. a community. So is the new pier an upgrade? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we built the pier to design, uh, it's designed to mimic obviously what we had, but it really just brought it into the, to the 21st century. The old pier was designed as what's called a sheet pile pier, which effectively is a steel box in the ocean and is filled with, with aggregate dirt, rocks, if you will, and then capped. This new one is built on piles, you know, those cement columns, if you will. 
which is better for the environment. It frees up the ocean bottom. It, you know, it allows for uh, better marine life that, that's there. But beyond that, we were able to upgrade the electrical features, the lighting. It just really brought it in you know, to, a, to a new standard. And we're pleased to say that this facility was designed for, you know, the original one that we replaced was designed for a 20-year life. This one was designed for a 100-year life. Nice. So hopefully, not anytime soon, will anybody else be getting a phone call at 2.17 in the morning. Agreed. That's a great idea. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about lessons learned and what advice you might have for others who may be faced with a day like this that totally changed everything. We'll be right back. As the CEO or owner of a small or mid-sized business in Maine, you've got the weight of the world on you. But what if you didn't have to go at it alone? What if you could journey with an elite team of peers who've got your back and an experienced guide who knows the lay of the land? With that level of support, how far could you go? For more than 60 years, Vistage, the world's leading executive coaching and peer advisory organization, has been helping leaders reach new heights. Learn more at Vistage.com. That's V-I-S-T-A-G-E dot com. Recognize that just because you have a nice set of plans, if you don't have the ability to adjust and to call an audible, if you will, at the line, you're not going to be able to get through things like this. Welcome back. I'm Donna Broussard. I'm here again with Chris Gardner, the executive director of the Eastport Port Authority, finishing up our conversation about the day that changed everything after the collapse of the Breakwater Pier in 2014 and the re-inauguration of the pier in 2017 on July 4th. What an apt day to have that happen. So now that it's back and now that things are going well, and I know this, this summer you had, you had you helped out with a cruise ship, right? A cruise ship that was docked there for a while right. because of they COVID. The, they had to sort of hang out because they had no place to go. Yeah, the Riviera. Uh, the Oceana Riviera came to town and it was quite a quite a sight to see. And, you know, this facility showed how important it was yet again, because in the year of 2020, which is a year we none of us will soon forget, <laughs> while every other community in Maine was facing a summer that they had to figure out how to do with less, that pier allowed us to bring in a ship. And we actually were one of the few communities who did a summer with something that they'd never had before. Now, this they had no passengers on the ship it was just the crew and they just needed to hang out for a few weeks until they yeah. I think they got sent to Europe right after that that's correct they just came nobody got off the boat obviously there were very strict you know guidelines in place with the CDC and all of that during you know this past summer we were certainly in a different place than even we are now but just the presence of it it was just amazing to see it became almost its own mini tourist attraction and when people in Maine couldn't travel, you know, abroad to, to, you know, go to their favorite vacation spot, you know, we were getting people from Fort Kent and Madawaska who drove to Eastport, Maine, because they said, well, we want to go see something this summer. So let's go see a big cruise ship sitting in Eastport. So it really was a, a kind of a unique thing. And, and make no mistake, it was because that breakwater was there that we were able to do it. Absolutely. So you said earlier that, you know, there was no directory or guidebook that said, you know, the pier just collapsed. What do you do next? So what advice or what lesson did you learn from this personally? And what advice then would you give other people who might be faced with a, a cat catastrophe like this in the future? Number one, I would say is, you know, resiliency is always, you know, important, right? You, you have to give yourself the ability to do that. And the way that you do that is there has to be a coming together. The only way we got through this was the fact that it was a community effort. 
recognize that just because you have a great, nice set of plans, if you don't have the ability to adjust and to, you know, call an audible, if you will, at the line, you're not going to be able to get through things like this. You know, from our standpoint, I, I've said, and we've said over and over again, is that, you know, planning is important, but you need to have a plan for what happens when the plan doesn't go right. And, you know, that was exactly what we had here. We knew we were on borrowed time with this facility. We did exactly what we should have done as far as, you know, as fast as we could, you know, put the work together, you know, get the, uh, the replacement plan there. But it, what we learned and what everybody could take from this is the fact that it doesn't matter how many plans you have. What's going to happen is going to happen. Really, the response is, is, you know, focus on resiliency and, you know, lean on each other and lean on the people that are the experts, like I said, with the fishermen. Yeah, we were the Port Authority, quote unquote, we were in charge. But I knew that the expertise as to, you know, problem solving out there are going to be the men and women who are actually doing the work, so to speak. So you have to have that trust to, you know, to delegate and to lean on those who probably may hold the solutions even more so than you. So that's one of the biggest things that we learned is, is to trust those around us. Any other advice or that you would want to give anybody? Well, I'll tell if anybody's got any uh, 50 to 60 year old fishing piers on the coast of Maine, I would suggest that you go out and give them a good tire kick and just make sure. But, uh, you know, I say that, of course, in jest, but, you know, with all of our small communities around, I mean, this infrastructure is so important. Uh, we can't kind of keep assuming that it's always going to be there, no matter what it may be, whether it's my fishing pier or the library or, or you know, some footbridge is, you know, a lot of times we just think that there's always going to be a tomorrow. We can always fix that tomorrow. In, in eSport for a long time, we kind of kicked that can down the road with the breakwater. We almost got away with it. But the reality is, uh, if you're out there, especially in these small communities or even in your own home, take some proper planning, you know, take, take proper inventory of what you have. And again, especially for our small communities in rural Maine, if there's infrastructure out there, bring attention to it because these are some of the iconic pieces that really make us who we are. The Day That Changed Everything is a production of Maine Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other Maine Biz media products at mainebiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. The Maine Biz podcast team includes Donna Broussard, Allison Nason, Renee Cordes, Maureen Milliken, Will Hall, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedenka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. Subscribe at mainebiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Copyright 2021.